to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, lecturer in literature here at Campion College. On the 4th of July weekend, 1985, the film Back to the Future was released into cinemas, and almost immediately it seemed to stamp itself on the cultural zeitgeist. The product of director Robert Zemeckis, who was coming off the success of Romancing the Stone, and screenwriter Bob Gale, Back to the Future was the tale of a young 1980s teenager, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, who was accidentally flung into the recent past, specifically 1955, in which he meets his parents and becomes entangled in their personal history. The enormous success of the film, it was as a number one blockbuster of the year, led to the production of two sequels, Back to the Future 2 and 3, which were filmed concurrently and which rounded out a trilogy which had a smorgasbord of time travel tropes and genre switches, offering dystopian alternate universes, a glistening speculative future, and a merry jaunt into the Wild West. In 2007, the first film was added to the film registry preservation list of the Library of Congress, confirming it as one of the most beloved and culturally impactful works of American cinema. To discuss this iconic film trilogy, I'm joined today by fellow Campion colleagues Luciano Boschiero, lecturer in history and science, and Dean. Hello. Thomas Flynn, lecturer in languages. Hello. And Anna Hitchings, our media and communications officer. Hello. Thank you all so much for joining me today. So, Back to the Future, uh, I have to admit I am blindly enamoured with this film, so uh, I'm not sure exactly how to, to tackle it, but I would like to start with the first film, sort of independent, outside of the trilogy, uh, to unpack why we think it might have been so so um, sort of resonant in its time, and, and why I think it continues to speak to new viewers. Well, I, I think the timing of the movie is important to start with, mid-80s. I mean, the, the movie itself in its style very much represents that age, and I, and I think viewing it now is some nostalgia for that, I think, at least for me. That, that's think, interesting, because, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but like, at the time it came out, it was nostalgic for the 50s, so you're saying yeah. it's got a double dose of nostalgia in the think, 80s and 50s. I think now, yeah, there's a nostalgia for... I think generally now there's a nostalgia for the 80s. I mm, think that's sure. been going on for some time. Acid wash! Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so watching the first movie especially, I think that that's one reason for its continued appeal. But aside from that, I think the reason why it was popular in the 80s and perhaps beyond expectations of the filmmakers is that... First of all, I think the central character is is likable. Is Marty McFly? Marty yeah. McFly. I think there's a lot to that. I mean, it's it's, it's simple, but it's just likable and relatable. I would say. Well, I guess maybe for, for young teenage boys. I, I, I guess so. Right. Right. He's, skipping school. He's and not. Getting the, into he's not the brightest tool in the drawer. No, but he's. Um, I don't know if he's cool exactly he's but, pretty cool yeah like watching yeah. it again they set him up like all the ladies love him as he he's, his like, hair. he's got sunglasses he rides mm. a skateboard and he oh, plays yeah. guitar he turns he up late to school he's got like a bit of a conflict with the with the principal he's yeah. playing a cool but like, unfortunately there's his dad and, and he's hanging out with a 65 yeah. year old <laughs> <sister there. laughs> well, that, how much more cool could you get incongruous with being cool is hanging out with an old crazy scientist but, yeah. but besides that I mean so he, the, the crazy scientist is essential to the story so he needs to be there and needs to be a relationship but aside from all of that uh, I think just the the futurism of it right the um, the appeal to time travel and, and not just time travel but all the bells and whistles around it the, the hoverboards which come later of course but but the the technology the the opening scene with the electric guitar and the massive speaker <laughs> the, the 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 potential of science and technology in the mid 80s yeah both as something to grasp and to enjoy but also to be wary of that it, you know can be dangerous i think those two things were very present in the minds of most people in the 80s that's really great that's not and, a, an element yeah. i ever considered right well, well just in examining why this movie was popular i think it that just resonated with a lot of people right so this Idea of time travel is is consistent with space travel. I mean, so moving into new frontiers in the eighties with space travel. Also, household technology yeah. is, is just changing dramatically in the eighties, and I think we see a lot of that in the second movie. But it's also there in, in the first one. I mean, it's just that these lives are fairly simple. They're normal people. Marty McFly, okay, gets into trouble. He's a cool kid, but but he's he's not an unusual kind of kid. He think the world is changing rapidly around him. So I think that 
that world in the mid-80s is part of the reason, when you're watching this movie in the, in the mid-80s, part of the reason why it resonates. So when he goes back in time, it's kind of a confirmation of how advanced society is becoming. Because he is... I mean, he's wearing the radiation suit. Uh, he's got the Walkman. He, he is like something... He's a spaceman. I mean, to to the eyes of uh, you know those farmers who yeah. fire yeah. a shotgun yeah. at him, and yeah. later to George McFly, he is yeah. something completely out of this world. So, is that technology combined with his sort of future knowledge dislocates him from human experience in that way? Or they're also kind of laughing at that idea because in going back to the fifties, Doc comments on the way he keeps saying heavy. Says, "Oh, has there been some gravitational accident causing?" <laughs> You know, causing the mover of the moon or something. Is that, and also, and he said, What am I wearing? It's a radiation suit. Ah, oh, from all the atomic wars. <laughs> it's a life yeah. preserver. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a simplicity to the 50s. I think that, that's still recognised. Whether it's, it's true or not, I think we, we tend to think of the 50s as, as, as simpler times. Mm. And the 80s, by contrast, are far more complicated. And even in the 80s, I don't think we were, we were thinking, gee, these are fun times to, to live in. And there, there were dangers. I mean, there was, yeah. the, the possibility of nuclear war is still there. And that presents a clear and present danger. But it also presents wonderful opportunities for the future. What's kind of interesting, mm. though, is we're seeing this resurgence of nostalgia love for the 80, 80s. I'm thinking specifically of things like Stranger Things, which in its most recent season actually did pay homage to this movie. But what's interesting is that by today's standards, the 80s seemed like a really simple time. Like there was no mobile phone technology. You know, the, I think the, the advantage of putting a plot in the 80s is that you can actually put characters in a situation where they can't easily get out of it the way that we would today. But also even just the geopolitical situation is in some ways arguably more, complica- more complex today. I don't know if this is a bit too metatextual, but perhaps the nostalgia that people feel for the, the 80s of Back to the Future is the same way that the people in, the, in 1985 when that film was made felt about the 1950s, about that simpler time. But I mean, I also think it's just, it's enduring popularity is to do with the fact that it's actually just such a good movie. Like, mm. It's very satisfying, it's very well written. And, um, and I, I've said this to you before, um, Colin, but that uh, I think that one of the reasons that it endures, even despite the fact that it has a, a few very bizarre plot elements, is that I think it's one of those thought experiments that people probably like to have in their own head, but it's nice and actually kind of satisfying to see how that might play out. Mm. Like, what would happen if, you know, I was, you know, at school with my parents, or what if... Well, can I say insert like, scenario here? I actually think that the, you're absolutely right. The, there is a, an element of nostalgia for the '80s, and certainly when the film was made, they're playing with that nostalgia for the '50s. I mean, his his mother in the film is lost in this nostalgia yeah. of the past. You remember George when we met? It's like there there, there is this sense in which society is mired in what we learn when Marty goes back in time is a false memory yeah. of the past. And and the film plays it out in, in a weird way. I'm not sure if they intended it, but in a weird way, the text itself functions that way because I've, I've seen this film so many times. I adore this film. And yet every time I watch it, I'm surprised by how utterly dark the, the 1980s are. It's not just like the trash <laughs> that's in, in the streets. It's there are Libyan terrorists, there is the dock getting gunned down, there is Marty's family. They're not exactly living in squalor, but these are all depressed, alcoholic... And like, the fact that she keeps referring people. to the 50s shows that like both of them really are living... And he's constantly watching TV. They're all living these very unfulfilled lives. Yeah. And abject bullying that's going on and the mistreatment at work. And it's just... It's, it's grimy and, and gross. But what I love is that... When Marty goes back into the 1950s, you get this glossy image of what everybody remembers, you know, the nostalgic image of the 1950s, that then I think the film unpacks that too. Is It's, it's not just that you realise that, that Marty's parents misrepresented themselves uh, in, in their memories, you know, that his, his father's actually a peeping Tom and <laughs> his mother is actually, you know, despite what she says, is drinking and chasing boys all the time. And smoking. And exactly. Why um, do you sound like my mother? <laughs> exactly. So it, it's, it's not just that they've sort of misrepresented themselves. It's like the 50s has misrepresented itself. There's like 
overt racism um, gets played out. There's like the, the way that Biff's friends treat that the band of musicians is like horrifying. There's threats of sexual assault that, that seem <laughs> well, kind of casually a threat, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, it mean, is. It, it is carried out, and it, it, it's very visible on, yeah, on yeah. screen. Yeah, it's, not, it's like it's you not know you want it, and like mm-hmm. all this. It's very very creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's horrible violence i mean again it's biff's friends but no one seems to bat an eye that they are literally trying to murder a kid in the street like they're trying to drive over him in their car uh there's a there there is an ugliness in the 1950s that it's trying to expose or unpack as as well and i I like that i like that puncturing of nostalgia and personal mythology i think that is under the surface a lot in the 50s uh in the 80s i i think you're right the 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 visible culture of the 80s is complicated in the movie there's a lot going on in that town Mm. square it's busy but not always in a nice way there are just people milling around there are vagrants there yeah there's like porno films right the the storefronts are not pleasant yeah right um, is it fred the um hobo who's on the the bench when he yeah when he drives past by the way why do you know his name because he says he says hi bro i know that i know his the vagrant's name but i don't know why he's the guy on he's the guy on the park bench as um marty returns to 1985 at the end of film one now that's interesting. I I didn't notice that in 1955 the mayor is called Red. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. See, there there are yeah. loads of one of the great things about the film. Why you watch it and rewatch it are the loads of connections. So Marty leaves 1985 from Twin Pines Mall. Oh, he yes. then arrives in 1955, drives over a tree, and then crashes the car. And you forget about it, and he returns to Lone Pine Mall yeah. because, of course, he knocked over the tree. So. Oh gosh, yeah. I never yeah. noticed. That's why, yeah. that's why that's Doc clever. says, old man Peabody owned yeah. all of this. Yeah. He had a crazy idea about breeding pine trees. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go? So I didn't pick up on that either. And, uh, yeah, and I, I wondered why he says that in the movie. But now yeah, the, the, now one I, the one I the one I mean the one everyone gets is that he, when he returns at the end of film three is it's Eastwood Gorge. Eastwood Ravine yeah. when he's crashing into it's a, But that first film is so beautifully constructed i mean as a work of screenwriting it's unbelievable the amount of exposition that they pump just effortlessly into that first half an hour that pays off later so uh they have the let's talk delorean there are a lot of cars in this movie and the preeminent one is the delorean with its gullwing number plate out of time he doesn't just have any old number plate he goes and gets a personalized number plate uses the last of the brown fortune to get it and this of course is part of what you were saying wasn't it luciano like that that idea of technology that's being so swiftly repurposed and altered and the the familiar made fantastical and the delorean is the perfect and, and example slightly the, slightly the joke is that the delorean company went out of business i mean they used it cuz it's futuristic looking um, but the DeLorean Company didn't didn't survive, and which is why the Glenn Goulier character in Wedding Singer, which is also <laughs> which is set in the eighties but made in in the noughts, he drives a DeLorean. It's, it's part of the marker of the fact that he just doesn't oh, understand that's right. stuff. I've forgotten you know? about that. But uh, sorry, Luciano, I just interrupted. Well, it, it's interesting with car. the DeLorean and the idea of futuristic cars in the eighties. Uh, that, that that was a very popular notion of what the future car will look like, and will we have flying mm. cars and all of this? And I think. The imagination um, surrounding that sort of sprung forward in the eighties, um, and again, you know, this is this is the time of thinking about future, you know, beyond two thousand. Yeah. What, what's the world going to look like, uh, and what technologies are going to be at our disposal? But the the DeLorean, despite looking futuristic, yes, it it, it was not a good car. It, it, didn't sell well. No. Even it in the movie time of car, it's always breaking down. <laughs> right, when it, needs and most. It, it was. Difficult to handle, I think. It was um, unreliable. and But the stainless steel structure allows the electric... Then get well, <laughs> but interesting, yeah. But, but the, the look of it, right, the stainless steel look was the futuristic look. Yeah. And, the, and that's what appeals. And that brilliant callback yeah. also to it looks like a UFO, like that yeah. glistening silver. Oh, especially the, kids in the, mag- the kids' spaceship magazine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> looks um, like an airplane. But you're right. I mean, the, the first film ends on that image of the car taking off the, you know the, the promise of the flying car is made as we rocket off into the into the credits a line pinched by ronald reagan having been mocked in back to the future and then in back to the future 2 he then quoted the line roads where we're going we don't need roads so can i ask what is it that time travel is used 
to explore in this film. I mean, time, time travel is such a huge convention. Usually when you see time travel employed in a narrative, it's talking about society at large or you know the dangers altering the, the present uh, Luciano you've, you've raised already that idea of science run amok and the dangers that could unfold is that what's going on in, in Back to the Future or is it it's I've not, always got the sense it's more localized. it's not a tight time travel story one of those ones where everything is caused by the going back in the past and and so you're, you're on a loop it, it's they, they have the get out the escape clause of it's oh we're just creating alternative realities and the original the original one is Doc always saying he's saying he was erased from existence um, and so a new reality because so when Marty goes back in time he creates a new reality and so it, it has always been the Lone Pine Mall mm. uh, so it, 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 it's, it's, it, it plays with the really interesting thing about time travel stories with causation but not too heavily it's mostly a kind of adventure romp for some reason you're in a 1950s world so that would kind of imply that it, it's just a plot device to get Marty to interact with his parents. Mostly, but it's a, it's a plot device where they lean into all the, uh, many of the implications with it, with all the clocks and the times, and I'm always running out of time. And it... Yeah, I think it's just an interesting thought. Ex- my, my personal take is that it's an interesting thought experiment, but I think the genius of Back to the Future is that they want to explore these ideas of time travel that we all have, but rather than actually do the obvious, you know, um, Bill and Ted thing of actually going and interacting with real... Um, figures and real events in in history, they're dealing with an entirely made-up story and timeline that only exists within the world of the film. So mm. they're kind of able to do what they want with it. But because you're enjoying the film so much and because you care about the characters so much, you almost don't even notice that. You know, I, I've Hell, watched it probably dozens of times, these movies, and I don't think the thought has ever occurred to me of like, oh, why didn't they go to some other period of history where they could actually interact with stuff that actually happened? Oh. I think you instinctively feel that's not the point of well, this, this film. this crazy named town, Hill Valley. <laughs> which is very close to Monument Valley, apparently. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> According to the third film. But I think this is just one of the many, like, little, um, not even necessarily Easter eggs, but I think that in many ways the film's kind of teasing itself, basically, like mocking itself with little things like that. Luciano, I mean, the second main character is a mad scientist. He's a physicist who has been disgraced. and. Uh, Do we ever know why he's been disgraced? I mean, I th- he burned his house down. He I burned his house down. I think in the extra canonical literature, it's part of his experiments of creating the flux capacitor. Oh, he burns his house down, but he's also poured all his money in, which is why he no longer lives there. Yeah, he, he's hardly a, a typical character, unless you're. There's that TV show about the mad scientist. Um, the, the Big Bang Theory. Breaking Bad? There's, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no it's, it's much older than that TV show. It's the teenage boys mm. who somehow managed to create this beautiful woman. Oh, Weird, um, science. weird science. Weird Science. It was a it's TV a... show. Oh, sorry, movie then TV show. Was it? Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, it was, it was a John okay. Hughes film. Right. Okay. My point is, un- unless there's a specific scientific plot um, you don't usually see scientists in movies, mm. I don't think. And it, you see this guy in this movie, but he, he does seem to be just there to get Marty's story moving along. Yeah. I, I don't see that there's a lot of progress with well, Doc, but you, you, I think you have a different view. I think I do, yeah. yeah. Well, he, he, he's not, but he doesn't just get it moving. Of course, he's there, and he's the one who makes sure it takes certain directions later well, that's, on. That's my point. He just yeah. makes sure that things happen but he's not a central character we don't really know that in one we don't know that much about him Mm -hmm. or or what he's trying to achieve necessarily out of the time machine but the time machine and doc are there for marty well he to be fair he does reference this very briefly in at the start of the first movie when he says you know we could go back and actually see the signing of the declaration of independence or the birth witness the birth of christ or all those kinds i think the idea is you know Discovering these science, like making these scientific discoveries later, for their own sake. Yes, but that is a very typical view of a scientist, right? So mm-hmm. the, the my point is that the scientist doesn't need to have dreams and ambitions and goals and love. So the the typical view of the scientist is that he is dispassionate. He doesn't have a specific personal goal in mm. the invention of a new discovery. Or, or in a new discovery. He just wants to see that this has a benefit for humanity. Mm. Or perhaps, the, uh, yes, and perhaps even you know, preliminary to that, whether it actually can be done. 
Or yeah, whether but, it can be done. Yeah, but he doesn't have a personal life, but which is one perhaps one reason why his there's so much life in three. Old. Certainly, they they raise his emotional yes, journey it, it, in three, it, yeah. and you learn it about really his past. You learn about his past. Say, um, uh, what about you? He goes, no, we weren't around in 1880s. We didn't arrive until such such and as the von Browns. They give him the future. Yeah, I would actually say, for for me anyway, watching watching the first film, you're you're right. It's it's certainly not on the surface as much as it is in three, where. I mean, the, their roles flip in in three. The the rational, I mean, he's he's erratic, but the rational uh, doc turns into the emotional mess. You know, he's he's the guy who has the the love story in three, whereas Marty is the pragmatic one who's yeah, going. We have to get home. True. Like, what yeah. are you doing? But I actually think in in the first one, Christopher Lloyd has a whole lot of emotional responsibility that he's got to carry on his shoulders. He's not only spitting out exposition, but he has to play the friendship between Marty and Doc backwards. Like he, he starts as friends with him and then meets him in the past where he doesn't know who this weird kid is and then has to, you know, the buddy comedy plays out on his side because Marty already knows who he is. So it becomes Doc warming up to this weirdo who... <laughs> has a vision of, of the future. And for me, that's where the emotional sort of centre of the film is, is this this guy who actually fears that he might be a bit of a loon. Like, you know, he's working on his, his weird little psychic helmet at the beginning <laughs> of it. Yeah. And, and I think even he suspects that his his life and his scientific aspirations might be going nowhere. Do you know sure. what this And here means? comes proof of it. Yeah. Sure. It and means he, this damn thing doesn't work. Really. And, and he tells Marty that you've given yeah. my life meaning. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I do think, uh, like, that, that, that to me is the emotional centre. Because, of course, Marty's journey is far less apparent. Really, really what he comes to realise is that his parents are people. You know, it's, it, he doesn't really have an emotional journey, certainly not the one that they manufacture for him in two and three. But in the first one, it's about realising his parents are people too and that they have the same fears and anxieties and, and uh, aspirations. So, so Marty is Clarence the Angel going around showing up <laughs> in their lives. A little bit. And in small town America. He just doesn't know. Not only that, not only that he's, 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 also, he's also responsible for the birth of rock and roll. Oh, <laughs> dear. Hey, Chuck, this is your cousin, Marvin. Yeah. Does that mean that George McFly is actually... George Bailey? You could run with that, but I'm going to say this is an analogy that popped into my head. Because <laughs> um, it's the style of filmmaking, so it's that, it's that kind of the movie about the small town in America, and um, any town America. Um, well, I think but... that's what's kind of cool about the movie, though, because the movie could actually be... Like, George McFly could so easily have been the main character. I mean, because in many ways, it's actually his story about how he became yes. the man that he should have always been. Very much how... so. He, they... He's the one who changes, most overtly, out of Marty and Doc and George. Yeah, if he's anything, Marty maybe gains a little bit, like you were saying, gains a little bit more understanding about him. He parents. just has perspective. I yeah, think. he gains perspective, but he doesn't go through a huge character transformation in the way that his parents do, but most specifically the way his father... Because really, it's all about getting his father to be... To become a man, really. There's a deleted scene, which must have been deleted because it just duplicates the Biff scene, but there's a deleted scene in the first movie where so he, he and his dad are hanging around at home and um, this guy turns up and it's his, his daughter is a girl guide selling cookies or something. And so he just has to buy the lot. And as the guy walks away, see, I told you we would only have to go to one house. Obviously, Marty is completely appalled by this. Is his dad getting um, walked over all over mm. again? And and it, but it, that is precisely so. Marty sees his father as this hopeless guy, and um, and and he says himself before we even meet George McFly, he says, "I don't think I can handle that kind of rejection." And mm. of course, it's what his father always says. Exactly. But is there more than than just George that that changes? I mean, the whole town changes yeah. when he when he comes back to 1985. We're talking about how grimy the town looked. It's still pretty grimy though. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I, I, yeah, it's no, got the, it's he, got the hobo on the bench. Possibly the ex mayor researched that point. Um, it's still got graffiti everywhere. But the the I remember seeing the backdrop that where once there was a pawn shop, now there's a place of religious worship. Is it where really? the, where the, the cinema the cinema was a you know, yes. triple X when cinema. he returns, it's now a house of prayer. This is actually a really conservative wow. movie. <laughs> <laughs> But, I but this is, yeah, you're right, you're right. And I think, hang on, he's just smashed into a church. Because I was watching it again yeah. this morning. When Marty goes back to 1955, he gets his parents back together, but he also changes George's life. And in the process, 
George becomes a different member of his society and the whole society changes, right? So he goes back to 1985 and the town mm. square. Maybe Again, I just imagined it. It looked nicer. Like it's a wonderful life. You know, when like he goes through, like, his, yeah. sorry, I'm, uh, this is blowing my mind, this comparison, because yeah. I never thought about this before. But yeah, it's true. When he goes back to the, what it would be like if he wasn't around, mm. it's kind of a bit similar to what the, what the world is like at the start of the movie. And then yeah. when he goes through his transformation, anyway, sorry. I wonder if it's Goldie Wilson. If, if it's, he gives Goldie Wilson the inspiration a little earlier to become mayor. Because you kind of got to imagine Goldie Wilson must be a pretty crappy mayor if the beginning of the film has such a crappy vision of contemporary Hill Valley. Maybe you know, inspiring him a little earlier allowed him to clean up the place. Actually, so, uh, that's all wild speculation. That's an interesting point you raised because as Thomas pointed out earlier, the whole point of the, this kind of time travel movie is that obviously we see how things were before they were changed mm. but then there are also little um, hints here and there to how things might have changed you know like Marty goes back and says oh you're going to become mayor I mean obviously if we're taking the film at face value he was going to be Gold- Goldie Wilson was going to become mayor anyway yeah exactly so Marty saying that to him would that actually have made any meaningful impact and maybe that's what I'm saying maybe maybe it did because I've never noticed that and similarly with the Johnny mayor, Good yeah well, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little offensive. Yeah. Because, because, again, what I actually love about the first Back to the Future, and they certainly they make it overt as the trilogy goes forward, is that ultimately the future doesn't matter. It's, what, it's the big irony of visiting the future in the second film, which maybe we should shift into a discussion of that. But the big irony of showing that future is that that doesn't matter. The, the future is kind of irrelevant in these tales because the... The future is whatever you make it. You know, it's that, you know, so make it a good one. It's, it's really about putting the onus onto the present day to do the best that you can in the moment. Really, yeah, because by that time, the movie making it shifted into the 90s. And, uh, so mm. we were all but, but even in that first there. film, it, it's really about that. I mean, it's an audacious ending in a way. Marty has remade the time stream and the film just goes, that's cool. Like, yeah. that, that's fine. His parents are different people now. His whole family's got a different... And, and it doesn't matter world. because everything's better. If everything was worse, better. it would matter. Yeah. Everything is better and when it, he comes back. But yeah. it's better because they've learned the lesson of living in the moment and, yeah, but, and of actually mm-hmm. trying to do good for one another as opposed to being mired in some memory of a past that never was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the second movie now. let's i think that's a good idea because we'll i think this is, this is probably a good point to do so because the of course the second movie picks up at exactly that spot with a different genre but, but the, yeah. the have to what it, yeah. propels us into a second movie is the concern about the future yeah which runs contrary to what doc is always saying you know don't meddle with the future yeah but, then but he's changed the, his tune that's the exactly that's the it seems contradictory that's that's the where we start and that's the whole motive for the second movie. No, we have to change the future because, you know, your life is going to be terrible, I thought. Why did he even... So Doc, when we haven't seen him, goes into the future, sees that Marty is, you know, lost and mm. confused. Or his and, kids. And, kids. And his kids, Marty. And his kids, that's right. His yeah. kids are... are his kids are about to get in a fight. I've forgotten exactly no, no, what his the kids, reason No, his is. kid's are going to join... Um, the younger Tannen. Yeah, the younger he's going to go to jail. And, and, and he's going to um, go on a robbery or something. And he's, uh-huh. going to go, he's going to go to jail and then his sister's going to try and break him out and she's going to go to jail for 20 okay. years. And But why they go to jail so quickly? Uh, well, um, things got more streamlined when we abolished all the lawyers. <laughs> but why does Doc even go to look at what's happened to his yeah. friend in the future? It, it Marty just runs contrary to the, his whole philosophy. At the end of, no, at the end of the first movie, Marty says, oh, I'll be about... 47 um look me up and so he but can't. but i think i think the point like luciano's making is for that whole first film doc is fanatically concerned with not knowing the future not not the perils of knowing the future thereby impacting the present in catastrophic ways well, this is the this is why the movie ends actually on it's one of those movies which ends on an unintentionally dark um, moment because now uh, this madman with his mad <laughs> sons and mad wife is travelling backwards and forwards through history on a time-travelling steam train. Oh, do you mean Nothing could go wrong with that. <laughs> but, but I do think that, that, again, that's the journey that he goes on in the, in the first film. It's a little buried by all of the action-adventure that's going on. But Doc begins with that paranoia about, don't tell me about the future, I don't want to know about the future. But he gets tantalised by 
the fear of the future when he sees that video of him potentially getting gunned down. He's maybe like, hmm, I might seek this out. He's still not ready to hear it when Marty writes him the letter, but in the intervening time from Marty disappearing and going into the future, he clearly has some kind of change of heart. He tapes the letter back together. He puts on a bulletproof vest that somehow stops a machine gun, but whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and then it's an AK-47. I think it's a... But he, he embraces the idea that he, he can have you know, maybe knowledge of the future or that, that won't. They do sort of address this in, I would say, a fairly, you know, half-hearted way with the, well, I thought, what the hell? Which, yeah. I mean, take or leave how believable you think that is. But yeah, I, I do think it is It is unusually out of character, probably because they wanted the movies to happen. Well, they, they wanted the movies to happen and it seems like the second movie or the second and third movies happen really because they just wanted to. There's yeah. no there's no clear reason for those movies to be filmed. But they're and great I, movies. And they just needed some idea to get them going. Yeah. Right. I think it's clear when they made the first film too that there wasn't actually a plan for the second one. It's a it's a playful, wonderful I know, never knew that though. inspirational ending, like, but obviously it I'm a little make sense. No, no. I'm a little bit younger, but when I watched them obviously it was all on well I won't even say D V D, it was on like VHS, but you know, it had the to be continued, to be concluded at the end of the first and second movies. And so I, my impression has always been that this was always a very planned strategic yeah. trilogy. Lord of the yeah. Rings yeah, me, me, yeah well you me too because I, I I first saw it on VHS. I didn't see the original movie in the cinema. And it had to be continued at the end. I thought, oh, there's going to be a sequel. And then I forgot about it. And then I noticed 1990. Oh, it's coming out. Finally. Yeah. So my dad introduced all three movies very deliberately to all of us. So we watched them all. But that's what I always thought it was meant to be. And I do think that they... I mean, I think that the average person watching it who's probably not paying, like, massive amount of attention to all the details, I think would be convinced by that. That, that actually that this actually yeah. was meant to be a... I mean, because, look, some things don't make sense for sure. But overall, I think it is fairly neat and tidy. I think they do a very admirable job of turning what was meant to be a singular story into the first act of a three-act I, I can't so think maybe, of another trilogy that has done it better but when it wasn't originally intended to be. Maybe Star Wars, the original Star Wars. Yeah, but he kind of had it for No, but... Yeah. He they, did they, not. Yeah, yeah, no. Don't I mean, do the, the original, the original <laughs> script. No, the original script no, had them on a Wookiee thing, didn't he? Didn't have any of it. Was there? Uh, I was there. Actually, that's what I was. I was. I, I, I thought that the original script had the Wookiee planet. I think when we talk about nostalgic myth making, George <laughs> Lucas might be the king of it all. But, but moving on from that, maybe let's talk about the the trilogy of, of Back to the Future. So, if we've talked about the first film, what are the complications that the second film has going into it, and and what actually plays out in that narrative? Because it's very convoluted. It's it's a yeah. It's I a, love it, but it's it's a and, messy and it's film, a, and it's below two hours. It's uh, well, I always go back to this, but a film that just brisks past and gets a lot of plot done in um, such a short space. Well, it has yeah. an alternate timeline. It has a vision of the future. It goes into three separate timelines. Yeah. It, it and does, plus an alternative timeline. It does what no sequel has ever done before. It literally inserts itself into the previous yeah. film. Well, like, oh, that's yeah. amazing. I mean, it actually relies on maybe not nostalgia, but certainly the the appreciation of the audience for the first movie to actually create the second movie because yeah. it constantly is harking back to its prequel. Yeah, which you is have kind to know what's going on. Very yeah. self-aware. I mean, that, that's what sequels always are, is, oh, I want more of the same. It's, it's almost audaciously self-aware. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, he takes the child's floating hoverboard instead of the child's scooter. And oh, this is creates in the future, the, yeah. in, in, So he creates the so floating I'm terribly scooter. familiar about all this. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and the manure that comes up in yeah. each movie. Um, is there manure in... Um, is manure in each one? One, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, in 1955, he crashes again into the manure. I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. I don't think there's that any manure in chase... um, 2015. Yeah, the tunnel chase is great. That's great. That feels to me like when I watch that, I, when I think about that, that I always think, oh, is that, that was that in the first movie? Because it feels more like mm. the first movie to me. That tunnel chase scene. In fact, that actually makes the whole thing seem a bit more complete to me. The fact that that happened. I watched the, fir- the sorry the second movie when it came out. I remember watching it. I don't remember if it was in the cinemas or, or sometime later on tape or whatever. But I enjoyed it thoroughly i loved the second movie and i have for many years and i may have seen it once again since until recently when i watched it again so perhaps the third time that i watched it and this third time i didn't like it quite as much Mm. Um, mainly because there are a couple of things that disturb me a little bit disturbed Um, okay yeah yeah sure but playing off also the first movie the, the and the rape scene in the first movie yeah. really sort of rocked me a little bit. Especially yeah. because I was I watching was... it with my children. I, you know, <laughs> I watched that with my parents explain. as a kid and I wasn't, I wasn't really sort of vaguely aware of what was really going on. 
the second one starts with Jennifer, and they clearly don't know what to do with her. <laughs> yeah. So they just dump her in an alleyway. Knock her unconscious. Knock her yeah. unconscious. <laughs> dump her in an alleyway. <laughs> yeah. Put sort of boxes on top of her so no one sees it. But then they still drag her away. And then when they get her back they and go back to 1985, they just leave her unconscious on the porch. Of a hellscape. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, well, they, well, can they don't well, know man, it's they a hellscape. That it, but all, all of but this, they don't go I mean, this is terrible. This is yeah. awful it's treatment of It's for her in house, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah, but Marty's house isn't still. his house anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and old man Strickland is on his porch just shooting away the um, yeah. slackers. Yeah, <laughs> slackers. Yeah, yeah. But uh, look, there are, there are only small elements of the first one and the second one, but there, there's still elements which, which on this most recent viewing disturb me a little bit. I do feel like the second film is weighed down by the stress of dealing with the first film and setting up what's necessary for the first. I think that's why the third film is so wonderful. It's it's just nice and expansive and it's got a simple storyline, whereas oh, the I second th- one is like... I think like, I feel like the third one's the weak link of oh, the no. three. Oh, no, 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 no. no, no, no. I disagree. I guess. No, it is. <laughs> no. Because it goes to... No, no, I, I agree with you. It, it goes to places that the others haven't really gone because mm-hmm. it, it start, sets up a love story for Doc and... Maybe that's what I didn't like about and, and, it. And it does, it ties a nice bow on it because it... I can't um, get emotionally involved in this. It, well, well no, but the point is it's, it's unusual because it's um, a love story between older people in a... Um, older in people? A, <laughs> Mary is old. I'm talking about Mary Steenburgen. She's, she's not old. For movie standards, she is. And oh, Doc, is, Doc is like, well, how old's Dockies would be? <laughs> like well, a thousand years old. Yeah. Yeah. About, Who knows? He, <laughs> he might be 25. <laughs> he might be 85. He comes Look, back at the beginning by, with plastic surgery. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my, yeah, yeah my, probably uh, half robotic. <laughs> That's what I mean by the standards of the of the eighties uh, and nineties. By the standards of now, you don't you don't show that sort of thing on film unless it's a big deal about romance in your twilight years. So, and and they relate on um, which really appeals to children. Ways. I can do exactly. Um, and so, so, it's, so as I say, it, t- it takes you to places you don't expect. Um, but uh, and, and it's got the old west in it. In the 1880s. Well, yeah, playing with the Western genre, I think, was genius. You know, even uh, in the case of the stupid outfit Marty is wearing, playing up all of the the 1950s Western conventions of film and then contrasting them again against what is obviously still filmic conventions, but but the the contrast between them is... And they have carefully laid the balance of what he's going to do because in... In the alternative 1985, he comes across Biff, who then helpfully explains everything so as to. Yeah, um, that's you're very, right. Actually, very... it is quite weak plot-wise because they have it's... to have um, they have to have exposition. Biff, the villain, who for some reason is monologuing, explaining <laughs> everything that's happening. Isn't so that what goes, villains do? It's as I say, it's sure, but it's it's very clumsy. Um, and uh, he explains everything. And he's watching. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, or one of the Dollars trilogy. Clint Eastwood's character puts on a um, the door of an oven and um, the armor the, yeah. as, as armor, so he thinks he's going to be shot, and he isn't. But, which is which, then, which I, Marty then copies. To be in. fair to that scene, he does explain everything because he's planning on killing Marty anyway, so it doesn't really matter yeah, yeah, how much the, of himself it's, he exposes. It's the monologuing scene, so it's, to, it's let everyone know. If, if you're a villain and you're monologuing, yeah, you James know Bond. you're about to get beaten. <laughs> <laughs> the pride goes before a fall. I like the third movie. Perhaps more than the other two. I'm not, Ooh, I'm not sure. That's I'm not sure if it's, it's, you know, it's my how least it, favorite. I like the I like the futuristic bits. But, but what I like about the third movie well, there's several things I like about it. it. Nothing in it disturbs me. So yeah. it, in the second one, another thing that that bothered me a lot. Again, it's a small detail, but there are a few small details that, that are bothersome. One that bothered me more than perhaps what it should be is that by what year 2015. They've now known about the time machine since 1985. No one's got a time machine in 2015. All this futuristic got flying cars, Jaws 19, whatever. No <laughs> hoverboards. No one's now developed the time machine more than what Doc had well, since 1985. Surely. But Doc had this weird, powerful, powerful insight where he fell off a toilet. So not enough people fell off toilets. Yeah, but the <laughs> once this yeah. invention is Invented because everyone needs a clock in their toilet. It, it's it's got its own life. That thought has literally never occurred to me. Yeah, there, there oh, are loads. Really? There are loads of weak. Oh, there okay, are well, there are weak. There are plot holes all over this trilogy. Well, it, but it's um, one that for some reason it just nagged me the whole time well, that I was watching the movie again. But the third one doesn't have 
any of those those issues yeah. because because it's thought okay well look if we go again with this whole 55 85 15 thing it's just going to get too complicated plus they were in the technological wasteland of the 1880s right but and what's but beautiful the, about the that birth of the city like you see the town being born yeah it's, you you do and what's beautiful about that that they managed to go back to 1885 1885 and that third movie is so much more about science than the others. Really? Oh, really? With all these steampunk inventions and... Well, yes. Okay, so there's Doc doing his inventions now and he's creating an ice machine, right? Yeah. A freezer or freezer or something. (laughs) So even that, that, that's a nice starting point. There's all the the, the scientific romanticism of Jules Verne and... um, and That's that's it. And also just the implications of the fact that the pieces I need won't be invented for another 40 years. So he's stuck there. And it is Doc's story and the constant references to who he is are there and they're tied in with what he thinks science is. Yeah. So when he is introduced to the school teacher I've forgotten her name Clara Clara Clayton or Clara 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 Clayton Clara by her own accent but yeah Clara okay so when he's introduced to to the school teacher (laughs) he Miss Clayton she she says oh you're a scientist of what sort and he says something along the lines of I dabble in all sciences (laughs) I'm a student of all sciences I'm a student of all sciences (laughs) And then he explains later when they're on a date how this comes about, his fascination with Jules Verne, which is, of course, you know, very futuristic. But there's that beautiful elevation in Doc's mind of what science is and yeah. will be and should be. And he does, um, he does this narration about how we're going to go to the moon. And she says, oh, you just yeah. got that from my favourite author, Jules Verne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when I read it as a boy, but... Yeah. It just oh, came out. Just came out. <laughs> oh, okay, I mean, I felt like I was a boy. But it's always tied to exploration for him. It's always yeah. like we're going to go places, we're going to see things. It's yeah. about expanding the mind through experience. Yeah, sure. And there's also a neat little reference to Marty's costume when he goes back to the West... For the first time, right? so he puts the, the, the ridiculous costume. costume. He's got the Adam symbol all over him. You know, yes, oh, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. I've never yeah. picked that up because it's no. the fifties, which and so obviously we were obsessed with the hat. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, that's so, great. Yeah, it's, a, it's and also, also the, just like those little details. The big the climactic line. like moment is tied to a steam train, which was pretty advanced technology for the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Well, it was about hundred years old at that point. No, right? no, no steam, steam technology. Yes, steam technology, and then the steam engine is much older than that, but. For effective steam travel and steam trains, mm. sure, the, the railroads being laid out in yeah. the middle of the 19th century, so and the, the, the Midwest of, is opening up. At yes, the right? symbol of prosperity and, and you know widening scientific progress. And never mind the fact that you know it's Monument Valley; you're supposed to think of it as anywhere on the frontier at any point. It could be. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah but you mean Hill Valley though? Uh, no, Monument Valley. Um, oh, so, um, so, uh, cool. uh, so you discover because he needs because they decide to film in Monument Valley, but um, he needs a place they know there won't be anything in 1885. So they go to the nearby Monument Valley, which is in California, by the way. <laughs> Look it up, and they um, so he, he drives through and says, "But won't I go through those Indians? No, it won't exist because it's the this Indian backdrop, for, yeah, American yeah, yeah. Indian backdrop for um, an, outdoor uh, an outdoor cinema, yeah, yeah, drive-in cinema, and he um, and it's just there for the visual gag, and it's in the trailer as he drives through and actually. Native Americans are charging and he, he, he drives right through them yeah, who yeah. then disappear for the rest of the movie there are no problems with, no, with the natives somehow he manages to find this little cave with a bear with yeah, a bear but, but that's just the perfect size <laughs> yeah. of his car yeah. and, you know and he has enough time to reverse in there and yeah, just, yeah, even though he was milliseconds yeah. in front of the yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 There, there, there are plot weaknesses in all these the DeLorean that broke down on a perfectly flat 1950s road can suddenly handle yeah. like, <laughs> off road yeah. but there's, a, there's going back to the character point there's a nice bit at the end I think when they're racing for the train Marty says great Scott yeah Doc says heavy yeah, because yeah. again, they, it's they, the yeah, reversal. Because yeah. yeah. there are role reversals throughout that whole movie. Yeah. yeah, I've never considered that. That the third film, despite being the least technologically advanced, is actually about the inspiration of science. It's about the, the it things is, that it, that it, inspire people to pursue the, this yeah, quest for knowledge. And and mainly because they chose to focus on Doc, yeah. the scientist. Mm. 
because uh, yeah, because Marty's just reacting to things. He's this his whole character is just reacting to situations that frequently he's accidentally created himself. To be to be honest, I, I have to I struggle to remember why Marty's even there. He's gone back to stop Doc being shot. Oh, do you mean in the third film? Or? The third film. He right. goes back. There's a quite a long bit at the beginning of the third film, set in 1955. And shot in the he, back by Buford Tanner. Yeah, he realizes That's that Buford right. Tanner's killed him, so he goes back to just after Doc sent the letter to um, warn him, and says, so "Okay, we have got to go back." He says, "Oh, we'll just get up some gas." I, I, because I, Marty is dumb. So, like, like when he arrives at the school in Back to the Future One, he arrives at his high school. And says, oh, "They cleaned this place up. It looks like new." Because it is new, <laughs> and uh, he's also he, sa- he says, "Oh, and I got an arrow in." That's the only reason for the Native American plot. I mean, it could have been a branch or something. I got an arrow; it pierced the fuel line. We just need to pick up some gasoline. There won't be a gas station around here for fifty years. Uh, yeah, so Mar- Marty Marty's there to rescue Doc, and they're going to, they would go back, but they can't, and so that, that's why they have to get to the train. And going back to your science point, Doc actually has a conversation with the uh, engineer about how fast they get a locomotive to go and says, you, you need a certain straight track. Oh, we have a straight track. Mm. You need to build up a certain amount of speed and, and maybe not carrying so much weight. And so there is a, there is a nice discussion about that. Of course, it's mm. all for the plot, but it's, it becomes proceeds from following the character and the, that's what the character's interests are. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't happen in the first two. I think that's, that's what interests me about the third one is mm. that there is character development. And and Doc turns out to be a, quite an interesting guy. He's, he's not just a crazy scientist. Yeah, Anna. No, I still stick to what I said. Um, I, I, I think the reason I disliked the third one more than the other two is because it just didn't feel as much like a Back to the Future film to me. If you're taking number one as like the gold standard or like, you know, of Back to the Future. I mean, to be fair, for a long time, my favourite film was actually the second one. But that was probably more to do with my obsession with the idea of hoverboards than anything else. And also, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now, as an adult, I've gone back and watched them, and I think I still do find the first one the strongest of the three. But I mean, look, it's fine. I think it is. I, I always got the impression that it was meant to be more of a family-friendly film than the other two as well. Um, and it's good. For, it's fun for what it is. But maybe it's because I don't, I'm not particularly interested in westerns. I'm not particularly interested in um, in Doc as a character as much as I am in Marty. So I just. You know, that just... would certainly do it. If you're not interested in westerns, and if the doc isn't really focused, I like attention. him, but he's not my. There's yeah. a, um... but, but Marty and plus is... most of it revolves around this old relationship, which is like to a young girl, it like could not be less interesting. Marty, yeah. Marty is unquestionably. I don't. I don't think he's ignored in the third film, but he is somewhat sidelined. Well, not... He is trying to rescue Doc because he um, Doc is falling in love and disappearing. So twice he wakes up and Doc's not there. And when Doc should be there, so he's, he wakes up after the the Hill Valley Festival, mm. and when the, when they get photographed with the clock, and, and he's obviously he's, he's spent the night talking under the stars to Clara, uh, and then the second time he wakes up on the day of, and Doc has spent the night. Because this bar's open all hours, um, twenty four. It's a twenty four hour service bar. He's in. He's in the saloon, and he um, he's just sitting there with his drink, not drinking it. And then for some reason, he drinks it, even though mm. it completely. Ruined. So he beca- So he then becomes the thing that, that Marty has to solve, and so Ma- Marty becomes the reactive force. Also, just as a side note, this has got nothing to do with anything, but I also remember being distinctly feeling distinctly embarrassed. I think virtually every scene Clara is in, for some reason, I just found it a little bit more cringy. Really? Yeah. You don't, I'm not a fan of the Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing like wrong with it, her. Yeah. It was just, I think it was just all the, the, the old romance. You don't like that she was rescued from the time stream. Yeah. That yeah. has absolutely nothing to do with it. She's like, no, she's meant to be dead. <clears throat> I think that I probably would have preferred if she was dead watching it as a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah it does, why doesn't Marty go back in time to rescue his ancestor's brother? The original Marty McFly, who was murdered in a knife fight in Virginia. What? Oh, yeah, so so the thing they invent right. to give motive to the mm. plot is that Marty has this character flaw. Oh, if you yes, say, yeah. you won't oh, do it yeah. because you're chicken, because he'll then have to yell her. You have to do it. So that's why Needles, his friend or colleague, Needles in the office in 2015... Um, uh, and Valley. Griff uh, and yeah he, he says uh, you have to join with me in this what this escapade which involves getting money and he's being monitored by his boss who immediately fires him for that and so he sends the fax because in 2015 we were still using fax technology we may not have hoverboards but we still have email <laughs> yeah. but fax Faxes came in in the 80s. Yeah, they came right. in in the 80s, exactly. And so they they, assumed, they, assumed, they assumed... Yeah, and so the futuristic technology. point was that they had three fax machines, oh, yeah. including one in the closet. I remember, I remember seeing a fax at a, like a fair. 
yeah. something and thinking it was absolute magic. I have no idea how this Yeah, happens. yeah. Now we look back and smile. And he, yeah. so he has this thing where he's, he's got to be yellow. So that's why he has to, agrees to fight a duel with Biff and he comes. But in between, he's met his ancestor, I forget how many generations back, who curiously is married also to a woman who a lot, looks a lot like Marty's mother. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> anyway, but Seamus is the one who says, my brother Marty, who died in a knife fight in that's Virginia. Wrong. That's so this wrong. whole thing, and so it comes through and it then emerges right at the end of the third film that he's uh, that, so when they're back in 1985 he's driving his truck and needles his contemporary so the guy who would be the guy who gets him to um, who would in fact needle him to um, to get fired needles drop played by Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers pulls up alongside hey nice ride race you to the next light or whatever and you think and um, Jennifer say no don't do this don't do this and he actually puts it into reverse and does a swing turn and says I wasn't going to race that idiot. Yeah, I was um, just going to drive into whoever was behind me. Yeah, he, he can. To be fair, the, he can look in the mirror. The and it was yeah. early in the, it was early in the day because he did say Saturday. to her, "Hold on to something. or put your seatbelt on or something." Yeah, it was in the and it, it was early in the day on a Saturday. So to be fair, and then the Rolls Royce pulls out, which is what would have caused the accident, which would have smashed his hand, to preventing him from playing the guitar, preventing his dreams of being a music player. And but when back, I mean, you look back again, and this is what these films do. Sorry, I'm cutting you off, but I just noticed this this morning. Is straight after the scene where he gets fired because of needles, he then sits down in depression. He picks up his guitar. He tries to play and he can't because his hand, his tendons are all smashed up in the accident with the with the Rolls Royce, and, and same and, hand that was disappearing in the first. Exactly, Ooh, is, yeah. is same, and he, um, but he is, um, but of course that's now been redeemed. He's, um, he has been, or was, in fact, because of course it's plain at the time is that in 1985, Needles had a go at getting him to do something stupid by calling him a coward, and he didn't do it, and this. Alter the timeline, and so he will be happy in 2015. And that's the end of Back to the Future 3. Yeah, there's a lot so going the, on. Yeah, the, the premise... So the problem is not resolved until the, yeah. the end of the two yeah. movies. So it really yeah. combines both movies. Yeah, they, were, sh- they were shot together. Yeah. Um, and as mm-hmm. uh, so an early example, Peter Jackson, don't do this, but... Um, uh, is, is Rob, Robert Zemeckis there was this terrible trouble of having to e- go off to edit the second movie while coming back to shoot the third movie it ends the the trilogy really ends there where he yeah. avoids that terrible accident everything for the future is resolved the very reason for going into the future and back to the future 2 is gone but that last scene is, is the only thing in back to the future 3 which I don't like oh this is when Doc Returns. comes back Doc, with the flying why train why does he come back because so they I don't want know that he's okay. to, to, to tell Marty to feed Einstein. <laughs> no, no, he, no. He came back to get Einstein. Uh, to get Einstein, yeah. right? When, so when, obviously he's has, he has already. <laughs> so what Doc has done is he's presumably so because um uh, the to movie, give the audience the pleasure. movie starts. It is. It's to underline the the moral of yeah. the tale, which yeah. is to make the future whatever you want. Don't don't fret about the future. Don't get mired in the past. Just live in the present and be the best person that you can be. Just to tell the audience that. So just, just, know, I literally think it's just underlined. Yeah, banging yes, the moral yeah. in, if yeah. They, if, yeah. Because if, I mean, I know it doesn't actually make sense logically, but it would feel weird as the audience if you didn't see Doc come back again. Yeah. It's it's purely that. The whole, yeah. the whole need, third film, I think, is yeah. a celebration of all the themes of the preceding two. And that final scene is the most overt, okay, this doesn't make sense, but they, we'll just why, throw it into celebration. Why would he create a new time machine <laughs> to go back to when the dinosaurs all, and he what, knows all the all destructive power yeah, well, that's the plot problem um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's just there for the visual spectacle and you've got, yeah. you've got to accept that that's what these movies but are I think, not. I think but also again, to show that Doc's moved on with his life like yeah. he now he's accepted his life in 1885 and sure. he's happy there okay. now and it's also a hyperbolic expression of the central theme of the, of the films is to kind of let go let go of causality let go of you know, this feeling that you're constrained by larger forces within your life and just embrace that you have agency and you have the power to make your own future. To go and um, kill the dinosaurs and ruin yeah. the entirety of humans. Again, it doesn't. if you extrapolate it out, it makes no sense yeah. because, yeah, he's just going to create more chaos in the time stream. Yeah. But as a general kind of hyperbolic fantasy expression of individuality and, and hope and dreams and... You know, making your own destiny, that's, that's so, kind of what it's getting at. I think. We, ha- we have it from Robert Zemeckis that you are not meant to think that Marty is in the background 
um, right at the beginning of the first film. That the second Marty is in the background, is coming back from 1955. So that's why it's not it's not like a strict time travel story. Um, and of course, that's confirmed. You're talking by the... about when he's on going on stage to try. No, no, no. In the background of when we're at Two Pines Mall, Marty um, right at the beginning of the first film, Marty is. Um, you're not supposed to think that the second Marty has just come back from 1955 and is just coming over the horizon. He's not there at all. So what it is is the cre- annihilation of entire times, time streams, and the creation of new ones. So, which creates well, so this thing creates creates a problem for everything. So, Jennifer is left in an alternate timeline. Exactly, there's that. So she should be gone. Um, And then 1955's Doc at the end of film two, the one who stays behind, should he should immediately resolve never to build the time machine at all, never to help the um, Libyans with the plutonium they've stolen, and that way preventing everything. But he doesn't. But then perhaps that's because it's an entirely separate time stream. And then you kind of wonder, well, then if they're all separate incidents, then really there's no overarching connection. So if you think too hard about it, it all falls apart. So. Speaking of the Libyans, ah, the just Libyans. quickly, Doc says, they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. He has... Doc Brown <laughs> experiment written on a truck that he's driving. Anyway, genius. Is there anything else that we wanted to to discuss? There's so much, really. Yeah. Well, we haven't even gone into the weirdness of a lot the of a lot of the plot. I mean, the fact that there's like a whole there's a lot of incestuous undertones in the oh, first movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The so fact that Freudian Marty's best here. friend is an old. Mad scientist. Well, yeah, that's that's that. It's um, a strange movie. It is, and you, we keep talking about it as a movie when it's really three. But it's I guess I'm it does kind of hang together. As yeah, well. but I mean, it all comes from number one. Yeah, oh, okay. And, and I, I, I was hoping think, that you were just think, seeing it as one overarching unity. I do think that all of the themes in little. the second and third film are extrapolated out very elegantly from yeah. that first film. You can you can say obviously the there is a stretch in giving Marty that whole don't be a cow or don't be a suicidal. Like yeah. coward, I guess. But I think everything that happens in those later films is in the first one. Even I would say Doc's emotional journey, it's just far more subdued. Like mm. he, he doesn't fall in love and he doesn't quite show the abandon for causality that he does in the later ones, but it's in there. In I mean, there is that overall sweetness because really what he's trying to do is repair and, if not improve, the relationship between his his parents he wants yeah. to improve their marriage and, and improve their whole family life and I think that's kind of sweet but there are some weird things like you know, I don't think he wants to he's too dumb to realise that he could actually make any other changes he thinks he's just changing things yeah. back he, he doesn't realise that he's actually making George impulse. into yeah, yeah no, it's no, no, like, no, he, I, I'm going to die if I don't help them so. that's, tr- you're, that's, that's true as well but I think there is still that motivation to to actually improve, well, not to improve necessarily, but to genuinely foster the love that would grow between his parents. He gives mm. his, his Even father though motivational his, speeches. His, like he's, he quotes I know Doc. his existence he quotes does. Doc, he quotes what Doc always says, which is, you can be anything you'd want if you just put your mind to it. So he quotes that, which is what Doc is always saying to him. Jennifer reminds him at the beginning of the film. Um, that's and what then, Doc always says. And oh. then George McFly says that himself at the end of the yeah, film. Yeah, in the film. Like um, I always say. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a, but there, there are the, the great things about these, the, all these films are the Easter eggs. I mean, I, I just keep bubbling up. The one I like is that how is he able to cheat Buford Tannen at the end of the third film by an idea he watched because Buford's descendant Biff yeah. is watching that movie. Um, well, to be and the fact that he takes on the persona of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I would also say. To be fair, Doc came up with the idea of wearing a bulletproof vest before. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes. But, no, but he did take that specifically because it was a yeah, western. No, I definitely. Yeah. I think it's a reminder for the yeah. audience. Yeah, no, I know, but that, no, I actually not, never not, made that connection. I'm not giving credit to Marty for that. I'm just saying there's a sort of nice Easter egg connection. No, 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 no. So no. how is Buford defeated by the actions of his descendant? Well, that's what I mean. Is it, the first film sets up a premise in its first. 30 minutes or so that then pays off at the end and that's countless like Marty playing guitar uh, the relationship between uh, his, his father and, and Biff and just everything everything that the clock tower being struck by lightning all these things are set up and then paid off and the sequels did that too so everything that's set up in the second film pays off it all revolves the around third. the clock tower yeah. each plot revolves around all the clock tower or bolts of lightning because what, why is Doc suddenly shot back to 1885 because he's randomly struck by lightning which they mm. couldn't possibly predict and inspiration mm. yeah, yeah. is a bolt of lightning mm. creative scientific oh. progress comes mm. from individuals so much having symbolism. ideas mm. it's oversimplification of it it's a romantic kind of idea of 
how scientific progress is made. Yeah, there's, there's also another aspect to the movie that, that, that's on the issue of, or the question of, of how science is portrayed. It's that science is given an elevated status, that, that it is it, it has this potential for great things, like time travel. But its abuse mm. comes from from humans. So, so science is... This is what we constantly talk about in, yeah. at, in, in, at camping college in science classes. Um, that science has a reputation of objectivity and unbiased and neutrality. And whenever things go wrong, it's only because humans impose because their will upon it. Greedy, selfish Biff took the almanac and went back right. in time. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So that, that's, that's a theme that runs through all three movies. But if you did some studies at Camping College, you, you'd be able to sort of pick that apart. <laughs> Very and, subtle and, plug. Yeah, yeah, we have yeah. some literature that you can read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. www.campion.au.au I'd like to, just as one other unrelated point to that, but just pay tribute to some of the actors. I, I think oh, they yeah. do a great job. Michael J. Fox, who is, isn't a particularly good actor. That, whoa! But he, well, come Calm on, he's not. Down, let's bro. be honest. But in this movie, he does a great job and... Because one of my favourite, one of my favourite scenes is in Back to the Future Two in the house when they, they all sit down to dinner. Oh, and he plays like half of his family. He's, he's the whole oh, family. Yeah, yeah. He's everyone in that room, yeah. I think. including his daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. And <laughs> dad, I, I think dad, that, that that's great. He's Seamus as well. Yeah. Oh, is he his dad as well? Yeah. No, 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 in, no. in Seamus the ancestor. Great grandfather. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, look, I, I just think he does. He does really a pretty well. good Irish accent as well, I would say. It, he, the mm. whole film. No? I mean, it's. The it's, Englishman is shaking his head. It's difficult to say this definitively, but uh, I, I am quite willing to project that the whole film doesn't work without him. I mean, they, they filmed accounts vary, but there was like either four weeks or six weeks were filmed with Eric Stoltz as the actor playing Marty McFly. That's right. And apparently the whole tone of the film was off. And that's probably not simply because of. Eric Stoltz was apparently very method and taking it a bit too seriously. There's probably other elements in it as well, but I think it is also Michael J. Fox brings a liveliness and a playfulness to that character that is necessary. Like otherwise, that otherwise that the film... whole tone of the film is that a lot heavier. Oh my god, yeah. But, uh, again, of heavy. 1985 mm. is actually a dark place in which there is this kid who has this very happy-go-lucky exterior, but a very sort of sad, depressed. Which I would say is actually kind of like a reaction against the passivity and the mildness of his own father. Yeah, which is why he's so rebellious. But but he has all of those elements as well. I mean, one of the we haven't discussed it, but one of the nice little um, subtexts in in the film is that. He actually exhibits a lot of his father's behavior. You mentioned yeah. the, the mm. what if they reject me? But he's also he's checking out women. Like his yeah. his dad is a peeping tom, and he's like yeah. looking at hot women all the time. Mm. And um, there there is a, a sense in which he, he might not be overtly bullied in the way that his father is, but Strickland is there to kind of kick him around and and be a bit aggressive with cause. I mean, he's turning up tardy to school and stuff, but he, he still he still exhibits the behavior that makes you understand how he could be the son of George McFly and how that could disgust him in a way. Like he seems he's got a sort of a, a sense of disappointment and self-loathing that comes from yeah. watching his father. And, and so it's, there, there's a nice wish fulfillment in that, that the child can inspire the father to be better, that both can kind of learn from each other in that way. And also I think Christopher Lloyd is, Fantastic. I mean, yes. if there's going to be any depiction of a mad scientist, he just pulls off beautifully. And the eyes just pop out. <laughs> yeah. And, and as I said, I think, mm. obviously, you know, it's the third film that really gives him the canvas to kind of play an emotional journey, as much as he hate that journey but like... I didn't hate it I just said it's my <laughs> least favourite of the three I still like it's still a phenomenal movie but okay, in my it. mind it's just not in the same league as the others the first two but I would say even in the in the first film as I said there's a subtlety in the way that he has to play his relationship with Marty which as you pointed out is a weird relationship in and of itself, like sixty. Which I never even dude. noticed until someone pointed out to me relatively recently. Well, again, I think I think because of the liveliness that um, Michael J. Fox plays it, and with the the, the kind of weirdly earnest sort of sense that uh, Christopher Lloyd plays mm. it, you just buy that relationship. Yeah, you, totally, you don't even question. Makes it. no sense. Yeah. Well, those were some of our thoughts on the Back to the Future trilogy. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, or if you're interested in our science program, apparently, please do tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. Our email is conversations at campion.edu.au. I want to thank Luciano. Thank you. Thomas. Thank you. And Anna. Thank you. Thank you all for joining me today. And we'll be back next time with another Campion Conversation. We hope that you can join us then. This episode brought to you by Disingenuous Apologies. Have you or your company done something objectively awful, but you don't want to risk facing legal responsibility or, you know, feeling human shame? Well, why not try a disingenuous apology from the Sorry Not Sorry Company? Our trained professionals can help you ape contrition while assuring victims of your callousness that you definitely feel bad if they chose to take offence to something you did. Disingenuous Apologies. For when you won't explain what happened, you're not going to do anything different and definitely don't think that you've actually done anything wrong. But you still want people to know you're super sorry. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.